Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. What? Jonah again? Man, what? I tried to move on and just couldn't do it. Wasn't ready to say goodbye. So uh, today we are going to do the best we can to finish up Jonah. How could he find more things to say? Well, we're going to uh, be looking at that today. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 5, which is actually found in Matthew chapter 12. That's a lot funnier in my head, apparently. Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. Clear up any confusion there. Jonah is, uh, for those of you who have not been here for the last four weeks, we've been looking into the life, or five weeks actually, into the life and ministry of Jonah, what he is, what made him tick. We've learned a lot about ourselves. In fact, one of the things that I've learned about myself is there's a whole lot of Jonah in me uh, that I have not recognized and realized. And uh, it's been an emotional series uh, for me personally. You know the story of Jonah. For those of you who haven't been with us, uh, you can catch up online. But um, you know, Jonah, God has a word for Jonah. Preach repentance to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to do that, so he moves in the opposite direction. Uh, and somewhere out in the sea, uh, as he's trying to escape God's will, a uh, storm breaks out. Jonah is thrown overboard because he's the cause of the storm. Uh, the storm relents. Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. Jonah gets to the point where he experiences the repentance that he was supposed to be praying for others. And uh, he ends up spit up on dry land, goes into Nineveh, preaches a pretty sorry message. The whole nation has changed and uh, God is glorified in uh, everybody's life there except for Jonah's. Uh, Jonah still kind of is resistant to the people of Nineveh and their confession of sin and repentance. And so we, we learn a lot about our reluctance to get outside our comfort zone, our, our inability or our lack of desire to honor and to trust the Lord's will for our life, um, our own nationalism. We claim you know, our, our, our particular neighborhood, if you will, or our country is our faith, uh, and it holds us back from other people, which makes us more prejudiced and racist and and all sorts of things that, that Jonah shows us in, in the mirror. So, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and, uh, well, I'll just read verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. <laughs> uh, in other words, we are in the process of being convinced. But we could be further convinced if you would pull a rabbit out of the hat. Prove it. Well, this word wish is, a, is an intentional word. It's, we would say something, well, we wish something to be true. It means we kind of hope it. Uh, this word in Greek is a lot stronger than that. This word means that 
uh, it's a strong desire, almost a demand. Uh, we would say, I want or I declare that this is what we want to be true. And so the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and said to him, we expect a miracle from you to satisfy our doubts. Now that's a very important question. And before we get too uh, judgmental on the scribes and the Pharisees, there's a great many of us who operate in our faith that way. We want God to prove it. So we know what God wants, but we want Him to prove it over and over. And what I've learned about asking God to prove something is that whatever God has to prove to you today, He will have to prove to you tomorrow. Because your proofs that you need, will all, whatever proof you have today, well, all it will do is answer or ask another question tomorrow. And so you begin to move from day to day, I'll believe God if He proves it. How much faith does it take for you to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Well, very little. Why? Because that's a fact. We know it. We can prove it. I don't have to keep going over and over and over with that, with the hard, cold facts, right? But the Word of God says that the just shall live by faith, not by proofs. And so we have to make sure that as, as people of God, that we're very careful to demand proofs, because proofs keep needing more proofs and to be substantiated. My emotions, if I don't feel it, I need God to prove it. If God says, do this, and I say, well, prove it. How many of us, and don't raise your hand, have ever said, if God wants me to do that, Lord, just make this thing happen to prove to me this is what you want for me? Of course we do. If you haven't done that, you will do that. We will be more convinced. How many of you have ever... Maybe not, but how many of you have ever seen someone you work with or go to school with and you, and you see that there's a need, maybe, maybe you have some sort of a burden for their salvation or for their concern or whatever, and you say, Lord, if it's your will for me to talk to them, do this thing, right? What we're really saying is we know what God's will is. We are to be disciple makers. We are to be peacemakers, right? But what we're saying is, Lord, if you will give me a further proof, I will be more convinced, but at the end of that proof, there's still going to be a decision that you have to make. So we don't live by proofs. Now that doesn't mean that we can't operate within reason and rationality and logic as, as believers. Certainly we can. In fact, the Bible calls us to do that. We're not scared of proofs. What I've realized, though, that when it comes to evidence, and it's not just true of faith, this is true of almost any field, is, is whenever you are making a decision, you can make the evidence do whatever you want the evidence to do. Right? So in other words, you have those who are atheists and those who are Christ followers have the same evidence available to them. Some say, how could you possibly not see God in this? And atheists are saying, how could you possibly believe in a creation? What's well, the same evidence. 
It's because there's one group who's not threatened by surrendering to a loving God. There's another group who does not want to release the authority of their own life and to surrender authority to another. We don't want to be controlled. What gives God the right to demand anything of me? So the thing that I would want to do if I didn't want God to control my life or to direct my life or to love me, for me to recognize that I have sin in my life and love me anyway, is I would try to explain Him away. And I would use proofs to do it. And a lot of times we who follow Christ want people to believe who God is and so we tell them what we believe and then we try to give them proofs to believe it. But You, you guys know you can't argue your way into somebody's life. You can't argue someone to believe because it's an act of the will. Not according to proofs. In fact, Jesus oftentimes would say things like, because this wasn't the only time he was asked. He was asked this a lot. In fact, some of the times the disciples would even say, hey, do some of that stuff you do and then they'll all believe it. And Jesus would often say, it's a perverse generation that asks for a sign. Or how long must I be with you for you to know or believe or to see? And Jesus wasn't much on the proving it. Now how he proved it, if you want to know the proof, I'll give you the proof. Jesus, and some of you have heard me talk about this some before, but and I, it's certainly not native to me. It's, it's, it's common sense, I guess, is what I would say. But a lot of people would say, yeah, but Jesus was, you know, we don't, be, I don't, we don't need to believe in God. All right? That's not, that's not where we started. That's where a lot of Christians try to get people started. I get asked all the time, how do you get the conversation started? You know, how do you get somebody to believe in God? It doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. Okay, that's, that's down the road. What? That's down the road? Uh, so if, you know, if I were a TV preacher, that's the part they would capture right now for a news article that you could share on Facebook. Pastor says you don't have to believe in God. No, no, listen. Uh, so you don't have to... Uh, that's not the question. Or how old is the earth and how is evolution and creation compatible? And, you know, even marriage. You know, you get, try to get people to believe everything you believe in order for them to be right with God. And all of that stuff is secondary. So where I would start is not about the past or creation or God's existence or all of that. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? That's the question. Because the most well-documented person who has ever lived is Jesus Christ. There is more documentation that He is than any other person that's ever lived. It's incredible. And there is more proof that He lived, that He died, and that He resurrected. It's incredible. So then we have to say, all right, well, there's the proof. We've talked about that many, many times at church here, all of the proofs of Jesus' resurrection. So there's the proof. The question is, are you going to believe the proofs or are you going to keep needing another? Your own experience. So some would say, well, yeah, but Jesus was just crazy. I mean, Jesus was really, He was just mad. He, he believed that He was the Son of God. He taught that He was a Son, which is really funny because there's a group of people who would say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And then the other group of people say Jesus is crazy and just thought He was the Son of God. So how can you use the Word of God to say that Jesus, well, it just doesn't make sense, right? 
So, now, I don't, don't take this personally, but I've counseled a lot of crazy people. None of them go to church here, of course, they're all in. But I've, I've counseled a lot of crazy people. But here's one of the things that I've learned about crazy people. They don't walk on water. Some of them think they do. <laughs> they don't walk on water. And, and another interesting fact about crazy people is they don't raise people from the dead. So here's what I want to just hijack your thought for a moment. A lot of people think that Jesus lived this holier-than-thou life and was a threat to the scribes and Pharisees, and so they wanted to kill him because they were threatened by his teaching. Not true. They were threatened by his teaching, but that's not why Jesus was crucified. If you will remember, the week before his crucifixion, Jesus was in Bethany. And Jesus, one of his best friends, had just died four days earlier. And you remember what Jesus does? He calls out and he says, Lazarus, come forth. You remember that? And there were Pharisees back out of the way and they were watching. And they watched Lazarus four days dead. I mean, I imagine he was, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus said, loose him. So he was still wrapped up. I don't know if he floated out or maybe they just didn't wrap him very tight. I don't know. To me, I know, I just, this isn't very miraculous. (laughs) I just need him to float out. <laughs> I mean, or hopping. <laughs> Whoa! I mean, he, you can't make him float, but you can raise him from the dead. Float that guy out. But I think Lazarus had to participate too because he commanded Lazarus. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So the Pharisees watch Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and they said, this man has power over life. We've got to kill him. That makes sense, doesn't it? We've got to kill the one who can resurrect dead things. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Not because He was crazy. Not because of what He believed. But because He was able to speak life into death. And they were threatened by that. Go back and read it. Jesus wasn't crucified because He was crazy. He was crucified because He raised dead things to life. Or other people say, well, Jesus is just a liar. Jesus didn't really believe it. He was just fabricating. Yeah, that's a great... Pitch that to the cross man. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus is just lying. Oh, he's just in it for himself. Really. And what about his disciples who wrote this? Now listen, there are publishers of this. I mean, we call them money people. They publish this. They make lots of money. You ever wonder why Bibles are so incredibly expensive? The paper is really rare. Bibles are so expensive but the ones who wrote it and lost their heads from it didn't make a dime from it. In fact, they lost their life for it. And they were even told, stop it or we'll kill you. And they said, we can't stop it. It's true. We'll kill you. Bring it. Now, I might die. I mean, I might lie to live. I'm not lying to die. Now, I don't think Jesus was crazy. And I don't think Jesus was a liar, which only leaves one option, that he was exactly who he said he was. And there's where the proof is, that everything about Jesus, everything he taught and everything he lived and every command he gave is absolute proof. Now, his resurrection is the greatest proof. Now, there, there might be one other, if not for the resurrection, this other one wouldn't exist. But His ability to love me 
is his greatest proof. But I had to experience that personally. All right, why, why are we talking about that? We're talking about that because now I have a decision to make. Based on the proofs, am I going to trust or am I going to need another proof? Because if you need another one after you've seen the resurrection, you're always going to need another one. So Jesus is who he said he was. Now, if I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ, which is common sense now, but give my life to Jesus Christ, this is where the questions start. What did Jesus teach about the character? They come to Jesus and said, show us the Father that we might believe. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what to believe about the Father, look at Jesus. I don't care if you believe that God exists. You still have to make a decision about Jesus. Once you've made about a decision about Jesus, what did Jesus say about God's existence? What does Jesus say about the age of the earth? What does Jesus say the point of marriage is? Everything then filters through Jesus, not all of your wild proofs of this and proofs of that. I don't care what science proves about evolution. I care about what Jesus said because Jesus' resurrection is a greater proof than science. I don't care what everybody else says because they're going to write a new science book next year. But Jesus is unchanging. What does Jesus say about it? That's the greater proof. So they come to Jesus and said, if you will prove to us in a greater way, we will believe. Here's what Jesus said in verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah reluctantly preaches a, in Hebrew a five-word sermon. Forty days and you will be overthrown, overturned. And all of Nineveh repented and sat in ash, uh, uh, sackcloth and ashes and began to fast all the way from the king down to the cattle. The lousiest preacher maybe in all the scripture in his heart. And the people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's five-word message. And Jesus said, Nineveh, wicked Nineveh, who destroyed nations, repented at Jonah. And here I am teaching you, showing you the love of the Father. And you're asking for another sign? No, there will be no more signs. The sign to you will be the resurrection. So here's three questions. Number one, how is Jonah's message similar to Jesus? Number two, how is Jesus' message greater than Jonah? And number three, 
Is Nineveh going to condemn us on our day of judgment? Nineveh, we won't go back and relive all of that. We just don't have the time. But one of the most wicked nations the world has ever known. And they sat in sackcloth, which means grieving, discomfort, and ashes, which is a testament to the decisions that they've made being very destructive. You remember in, we're going to analyze Jonah's message. It's just two, two words is what I want to focus on. One is 40 days and the other is overthrown. 40 days is, uh, is the number of judgment in Scripture. It's a number of proving, which is interesting because it's like, a, it's like the word of uh, uh, imminent judgment. Overthrown is, we've talked about that before, week one or two, I think. Uh, it's, it's, it's more of a war term, and it's, it's God's going to do war against you and put down the rebellion against Him. And if you will respond, then you will have a hope. If you do not respond, then you will be destroyed. Either way, you're going to be changed permanently. A lot of times we think of sin being devious behavior that hurts other people like cheating and stealing and lying and cruelty and you know gossip and those sorts of things and we think that you know these are these are terrible things for us to do and we if if we realize that we do these things what we want to do is I've recognized what I felt towards you or what I what I said towards you or what I did towards you was wrong and so will you please forgive me and we we settle it there because we see how egregious it is to, hurt, to harm one another. But the truth of the matter is, is all sin is an affront to God Almighty. That's where sin lies. I want to restore our relationship because I've done damage to this one. But I think a lot of times we leave out the consequences to God and the affront to God and we're focused more on the here and the now. But the most significant dimension of sin is its effect as an affront to God. There's two primary roots to sin. First is pride. Pride says, I know better how to run my life. I don't want God's manipulation and control. I can handle it just fine. I'm going to do it. I'm afraid that God will derail my plan. And so I'm going to kind of pray to Him in darts. I'm not going to pay much attention to Him, but I want Him to pay attention to me. I just don't need to listen to Him because I'm afraid He won't give me what I want. It's pride. You really think that you have a better plan for your life than God has for you? That you can find contentment greater than God's plan for your life? The one who loved you far before you loved yourself? The one who could have made anybody else and chose you for His glory and His will and you have a better plan? You see how, how prideful that actually is. The second root of sin is idolatry, which means that we would never say this. So, you know, let's all be in agreement there. We, we would never say this out loud, but idolatry just simply says, I matter more than God. My interests and what I want are more important than God and what He wants. Now again, we would never say that. In fact, we would say the opposite. We would say, God is the most important thing to me. But our life, our decisions, our behavior does not bear that out. The Hebrew word for worship at its very root is the word kabod. And what the word actually means is weight. 
So whatever you give the most weight in your life is equated to worship. So where you weight things, and it's, you know, if, if God has the weight, He's the weightiest thing in my life, He gets all of my worship. The problem is, is when our relationships, our family, our job, our money, our possessions, our our influence, all of those things become to be weighty too. And so right now, it would be really easy for us to say, where is God? Well, God is the weightiest thing in my life. I'm here, aren't I? We just sang some songs and we lifted our hands and God has most of the weight in my life. God has, I'm giving God most of the worship in my life. And that would make really good sense, except we don't recognize that when we leave here, other things start getting pretty heavy. Our calendars, our wallets, our reputations. We start jockeying for positions and competing out there. And those things that we want, those things that we live for, those motivations become so important, they start being weighty. And we're not comparing them to the weight of God because we're not actually in our minds in God's presence in those moments. But the truth of the matter is, when you, when you surrender to Jesus Christ, it is a from now on surrender. Nothing else. Matter of fact, everything I just mentioned... All of those are tools that help me give more weight to God. So I use my family for worship, for His glory. I use my money for His glory. I use my reputation for His glory. Because not only is He the weightiest thing in my life this moment, I want Him to be the weightiest thing in my life on Monday morning too. So those things... Everything that we give a little bit of weight to are idols. And we don't recognize that. That we're, we're worshiping a hodgepodge, multiple things. And they're all distracting us from the one thing. And that one thing that should be the weightiest, we keep saying, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. But nothing else in our life has to prove it. Which means that it's not just choice there is a satanic attack against taking the weight off of God and putting it on anything else. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, once said 500 years ago that humans are just regular idle factories. Constantly producing idle after idle. The biggest idol we have is ourself. What we want, what we desire is weightier than anything God wants or desires. You ever heard people say, maybe, maybe even there's some in here today that would say, I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be here. God, God did it. I, you know, if God would just mind His own business, I would mind mine. You know, can't we just have some sort of a, of a term of separation? God does, you do your thing and just leave me alone. Mind your own business. And I love the idea of that. I've had several people actually say that to me. Why doesn't God mind his own business? You realize that God created everything. I mean, nothing that has breath and nothing that doesn't was not, everything was created by God, right? I mean, this moment, created by God. The breath that you just took, created by God. Your lungs that took in that breath, created by God. 
So when you say, God, mind your own business, that's exactly what he's doing because you belong to him. Every breath. God minds his own business and God wants a relationship with you. Now, whether you like that or whether you don't like that, doesn't really matter. You belong to the Lord. You can act as a rebel or you can act as a son. The choice is up to you. And that is a good God who gives us the free will to choose Him or reject Him. But either way, when He's involved in your life, He's minding His own business. He has put His kingdom right at your fingertips. Imagine, I love this illustration. What if a fish, if a fish were today just to say, you know what, I am so sick and tired of living in this water. I think I'm going to live on land. Well, good luck, little fishy. <laughs> right? You were created for the water. You will not find contentment on the land. And it's the same way it is when we, people who are made in God's image, would say, I don't want God's stronghold on me. I want to live independent from Him. Well, good luck. Because you were created to be in a relationship with your Creator. Jonah's message was, 40 days and you will be overthrown. Jesus' first message, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Believe it or not, it's the same message. Because the, the number 40 throughout Scripture is used as a symbolic gesture of the fulfillment of time. Now, sometimes it may be very literal, but oftentimes it's used as a picture of God's providential appointment keeping. It's used a lot, in fact, in Scripture. So both of these messages are exactly the same. Get your life right before God because He is coming. Who knows but that He might relent. Forty is mentioned 146 times in Scripture. That's a lot for one number to keep showing up. And I'm not including verses and chapters. So let's just walk through a few of them. I'm not going to give you 146. But let's walk through a few. God flooded the earth by having it rain for how long? Anybody remember? And how many nights? Yeah, okay. Well, that's not too miraculous. Right? You remember, uh, this was in... Uh, the book of Genesis, when Abraham, God tells Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, will you destroy them if there are... And he started where he started. Lord, will you destroy them if there are 40 righteous? Right? Isaac and Esau were 40 years old when they got married, both of them. Kind of interesting. Forty. During Moses' life, you remember how long he lived in Egypt? Forty years. Remember how long he was in the desert? Forty years. You remember how long he led Israel? Forty years. Wow, that's for an OCD guy, I like that a lot. <laughs> that symmetry is wonderful. When when Jacob died, uh, and he died in Egypt, of course, you it's kind of obscure, but the Egyptians spent 40 days embalming his body. 
kind of obscure. Moses was on Mount Sinai 40 days receiving the law of God twice, two different times. Moses sent out spies. Remember how long the spies were to be out in Canaan? 40 days. God, uh, God when, it, when Israel left Egypt, God swore that that generation would not be able to go into the inheritance of Canaan. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And the children of Israel were punished by wandering the wilderness for 40 years till that generation passed. From the time that they entered into the promised land to the time of their first king, King Saul, they were sporadically governed by judges. Now judges didn't have the same rule as a king, but they wielded incredible influence in discovery in God's will, God's word, what does God want, right? So five judges... Othniel, anybody want to guess how many years Othniel served? 40 years, genius, right? Mind blown, 40 years. Deborah, female judge, you know how many years she judged? 40 years. Barak, 40 years. Eli, 40 years. Which brings us to Gideon. Anybody want to guess? 40 years. There were, there were the first three human kings over the children of Israel was Saul, David, Solomon. How long did Saul rule? 40 years. You're getting pretty good at this. What about David? 40 years. Solomon? Well, you, you're losing steam here. I got a lot more of these. <laughs> after, after the... Uh, Kingdom split into two. There was a king, Joash, one of the better kings of Judah. Ruled for 40 years. Yeah, You probably are starting to pick this up a little bit. So every now and then, God would allow His children to go into some sort of captivity, to teach them humility, to teach them reverence, to bring about repentance in their life. And the Philistines in the southern and the western parts of Israel harassed them from 1105 B.C. to 1165 B.C. Anybody want to guess how many years that is? Yeah, 60 is right. No, it's 40. Come on. The prophet Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to symbolize Israel's sin. Elijah went 40 days without food or water. At Mount Horeb, Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. Guess how many authors there are in this book? We don't know all of their names, but we know there were 40. That's not in Scripture. I just thought it was interesting. Did you know that there are, between God's covenant to Abraham and then on forward to Jesus' birth, between Jesus' birth... And Abraham, how many generations? Forty. From God's covenant made to God's covenant kept. Appointments. 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 In fact, Scripture even says that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son into the world. The perfect time. 
Jesus, just days before His crucifixion, He told all of the leaders that God was going to destroy Jerusalem and tear stone from stone. Forty years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, listen to this closely. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Do you know what that message is? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what that message is? Forty days, and you will be overthrown. If you're going to live like the king now, when the true king comes, he will throw off every false king and sit back again on his throne. You'd better save the place for the King of Kings on His throne. We talk a lot about death. And we don't know when we're going to die. So, you know, for anybody that's younger, it's always in the future, right? The older you get, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but it's not as many days as I had yesterday. So we start getting more and more serious, you know, the older we get. So if you're young, like me, you're thinking to yourself, that's not funny. You're thinking to yourself, oh, I've got plenty of time, right? Well, let me just remind you of something. We believe that the Bible teaches in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He is coming back. Your death is not the only thing that takes you into eternity. The King is coming. He's on His way. And you're going to be overturned whether it's transformed into Christ-likeness for all eternity, or whether it's destruction in hell for all eternity, will determine, it will be determined by your willingness to believe by faith, not demand more proofs. Jesus asked a very penetrating question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what would man give in exchange for his soul? Boy, I know the answer, but I also know how we live. Think about that thing that you want more than anything, that person, that job, that possession, that, that influence, reputation, whatever. Is it worth your soul? Of course not. Of course it's not worth our soul. But, but we sure do give it a lot of weight. Ninety-seven percent of America believes in an afterlife. That's a lot of people. Now, you know, majority doesn't make doctrine. But ninety-seven percent of America believe in an afterlife. Only fifty-eight percent believe in hell. I mean, the, this book teaches us that there is an afterlife. Right? That there is a heaven and a hell. So the same book that teaches that there is an afterlife, many Americans 
don't want to believe in hell. Which tells me we have the same evidence. But some people don't want to believe the evidence. They want to believe what they want to believe. And so I don't want to believe in a hell. I'm not going to believe in a hell. It also tells me that not all Americans believe in the afterlife because of this book. But Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That means at creation, you know, your very first breath, you know that there's something bigger than you that lasts forever. God put it in you. Romans chapter 1 testifies that too. Knowing Him to be God, but not surrendering to His authority, suppressing the truth. We did not honor God. If there is an afterlife, is there anything in this world that you could gain here that would be worth eternity? Now, ask yourself this question. Your last breath that you're about to take, what in that second is worth eternity? Nothing. (laughs) And the short years between here and there... Is it that much more valuable? I mean, if I were to come along and say, hey, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to give you, and you'll know this isn't true, billions of dollars. Soon as church is over, first one up here, billions of dollars. But here's how you get it. At midnight tonight, you have to die, and you have to give everything back. It's awesome. All day long, I get to have Billions of dollars. There's not a person in this room that would say, that's a pretty good deal. I'd do that for billions of dollars. I'd forfeit my life and my eternity for billions of dollars. What in the world? I mean, you see how distracted we get with tomorrow and all of the things we're looking forward to for tomorrow and finding our identity in everything other than Jesus Christ. Well, so Nineveh got a very um, truncated message, very short. Their message was, you're going to 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. 40 days and you'll be overthrown. What Jonah had just learned was that you can rebel against God, go in the other direction, God's going to pursue you, follow you, seize you, bring you back into a relationship with Himself, and then give you purpose and meaning. God is loving, compassionate. He's a pursuer. He loves to give grace. He is a forgiver. He is purposeful, intentional. Jonah could have stood up and said, and here's God's character and nature. Here's why God does this. Forty days is small potatoes. Please repent. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. No, that's not Jonah's message. Jonah knew it. Jonah didn't share it. We've already talked about that. But at the end of Jonah's message, the king said, I don't know about this God. I don't know about this God, but I know this. I'm going to do everything within my power to appeal to a softer side of this God. 
It's, it made common sense. I don't know what kind of character and nature, but I'm going to assume that maybe he's good. And if he's good, maybe he will respond to me making efforts and being sorrowful. Groveling, if you will. But Jesus came along and Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and are weary, and I will give you rest. I wonder if the king of Nineveh would have liked to know that. I wonder if the king of Nineveh would like to have known the one who comes to me, I will never for any circumstance cast out. Boy, that would have been, that would have been pretty good information. I bet the king of Nineveh would have loved to have heard, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not be overthrown, but have everlasting life. Boy, that would have been a good message. I think the king would have appreciated that. I mean, even Paul knew it. Paul didn't walk under Jesus' earthly ministry, but in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul even knew, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you got Nineveh's king standing in the corner in sackcloth and ashes saying, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Can you imagine walking in that fear? Not knowing the character and nature of God? And Nineveh repented. And here we sit, knowing all of the teachings of Jesus. And we sit with all of our idols surrounding us, living it up. Nineveh only had hope that perhaps God would relent. But Jesus is greater. Because God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so much better than the message of Jonah in that He who knew no sin, everything that I am, my sin, my shame, my guilt, my condemnation, my fear, my paralysis, my laziness, everything that makes up me went directly to Jesus. And everything that Jesus is, His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness, the pleasure that He gives the Father, all of that is imparted to me. Isn't that great news? That's the news of the gospel. Nineveh repented at Jonah's gospelless message. But we, I'm afraid, don't even repent at the gospel of Christ. And we want further proof. They didn't know Jesus. And they recognized it. We know Him. And we don't. Nineveh. The men, the wicked men of Nineveh one day will be standing in the throne room of the King of Kings and will bear judgment against us. 
I, I do not want to be standing there when the most wicked man in the world has ever produced to look at me and say, how could you not have known? We got it from Jonah. <laughs> Here's the gospel. God is for you. You don't have to wonder if God's going to forgive you. God is for you. All we have to do is to live obedient to Him and to give Him the weight of our life. But who is this God, Jonah, that we would serve Him? I mean, we see that in Scripture too. Who is this God that we should serve Him? Jonah had a word from the Lord, but Jesus is the Word of God. Jonah was selfish and he did what he wanted, but Jesus was selfless and he did what the Father wanted. Jonah served when it was convenient and comfortable. Jesus considered himself nothing and gave up everything. Jonah ran from his assignment. Jesus ran into it. Jonah came because he had to. And he rebelled against the Father. Jesus came because he wanted to please the glory and the will of the Father. Jonah was resentful and unmerciful towards sinners. Jesus was kind and compassionate and known as a friend to sinners. Jonah actually sat outside the city and hoped for a repentant city's destruction. But Jesus stood outside of an unrepentant city and wept and pleaded for her salvation. The only reason that Jonah delivered his message to Nineveh was to save his life. And Jesus delivered his message knowing that he would die. It was part of the plan. Jonah was thrown overboard into the sea of God's wrath because of his sin. But Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath for mine. Jonah was taken down into the depths of darkness for three days because of his disobedience. But Jesus was taken into the darkness of death for three days for mine. Jonah was judged in the center, in the, as a sinner in the belly of a fish to show God's justice and brought back to shore to show His restoration. But Jesus was judged like a sinner put in a tomb to show God's, God's justice and raised to life to show that God restores. Think about Jonah and his lamenting the prospect of the loss of his own countrymen if Nineveh were to be repentant. But Jesus lamented that even the surrendering of his own blood would not bring salvation to Jerusalem. Jonah was more upset about the death of some stupid plant that gave him shade than he was about the destruction of Nineveh's children. But Jesus gladly, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, endured the pain of the cross... For the joy that was set before Him endured the pain and the joy of making rebels into sons. Jonah showed up bearing only the announcement of condemnation. But Jesus said, The Father has sent me into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. When God's mercy was shown to Nineveh, Jonah wallowed in self-pity and cursed God. 
But Jesus depicted himself as a father who desires the return of his son so badly that when he runs out to meet him and forgives him, before the son can even say, I'm sorry. What happened to Jonah is true only for Jonah. But what happened to Jesus is true for everyone who will trust Him. After Jonah came out of the belly of the fish and he preached, and then Jonah waited for 40 days, hoping for the destruction of Nineveh. But when Jesus came out of the belly of the earth, He made disciples for 40 days, preparing them to reach the most wicked men imaginable. And for 2,000 years, wicked men have been reached. And we are the product of their ministry. Nineveh, their repentance lasted about 100 years before they were completely destroyed because they didn't have a disciple maker. And here we sit, surrounded by our idols. The very first week I told you that Jonah, son of Amittai, means the dove of peace, peaceful, the bearer of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace, the true peacemaker and peace bringer. So the message that the Ninevites heard, compare that message with the message of Jesus Christ. We say, we want a proof We wish that you would prove it to us again. Jesus said, You've got Jonah. There'll be no further proof. The men of Nineveh will rise up and will judge you on the day of judgment. You may say, Well, I just need a sign from God. No, 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 no. What you need is you need to see Jesus. That's what you need. Jesus is a greater Jonah. You want a sign? There'll be no sign greater than Jesus Christ. You keep wanting more and more and more. And Jesus doesn't say He won't give them. Every now and then, man, I tell you what, every now and then He'll give you, he'll give you a little something that just makes you take another step. But you know what I find every time I say, Lord... I just don't know. I need proof. Every time the Lord shows me, I need more proof. Jesus lasts forever. Jonah to himself in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 said, Those who cling to worthless idols, worthless idols, forfeit the grace of that could have been theirs. Everything that keeps you from keeping God first isn't a lack of proof. Whatever it is that holds you back from putting God first, it isn't because you're not convinced. It's that you can't see Jesus over all of your idols. And in the meantime, unlike the men of Nineveh, we just keep forfeiting the day's grace. Because we're looking for something else. Let's pray together. (sighs) 
Lord, I pray this morning as we begin to decide what we're going to do in response. I pray that, oh Lord, soften our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to feel. Give us a revival, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.